1: Uh oh! Guess what day it is, Julie? Ah? Huh? Julie? Ah? Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? what day it is? is. Day it is. <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Ah? Huh? Woohoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's Hump Day. Hump Day! Woohoo! <laughs> it's hump Day. Hump
2: <laughs> this is Tom Donaldson here with the Donaldson Files and the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, tonight we're going to spend a full hour with Justin Hart. And don't forget, we do have the resistance hour with Dr. Larry and myself, fighting for truth, justice, and, and what's left of the American way. So we. So it'll be uh, two-hour blocks of resistance radio against the upcoming uh, here in Biden's America. Uh, I am the chairman of America's PAC. I am also the project director for America's Majority Foundation, and I'm the author of eight books, none of them bestsellers, but they all should be, including Boxing in the Shadows, which is about black boxers, the history of black boxers in the United States, and... The Rise and Falls, and you know, The Rise of National Populism and Democratic Socialism and What Our Response Should Be. Uh, one of the best books written about the Trump era, if I don't say so myself. In 2017, much of what I wrote has basically come to pass. In, in particular, the, the Democratic Party essentially becoming the Democratic Socialist Party of America. Now, I have Justin Hart with me. He uh, you know, works with rational ground. And I'm just going to put it this way. Uh, I'm going to let you go ahead and talk about some of your qualifications, Justin.
3: Well, look, I'm uh, not an epidemiologist. I'm not a virologist. I always say that at the outset, but I'm a darn good data guy. And normally I wouldn't insert myself into this domain or another uh, industry's domain, but they sure seem to be inserting themselves into my life and my church and my business and my kids' education. So I hope they'll forgive me if, I've, uh, if I can check the math. I've checked it, and it's very bad. And so th- that's what we're about. We're about uh, at Rational Grounds. Um, we, we provide data-driven uh, analysis of the disease. We try to provide uh, policy uh, recommendations. We try to show the other side of the equation of when you try to uh, lock down a society and what happens. And that's our main goal is to end the lockdowns. Uh, However, that takes place, and we've got plenty of evidence to demonstrate that uh, the impact on our world and society, most importantly, our kids and our families, is dramatic and drastic, and we need to end it now. So that's what our main goal is.
2: Yeah. Well, let me me say you've uh, you've had political experience, and I know your wife has been a writer uh, for a long time as well. And so you guys have been involved in the political aspects and the writing aspects and everything else. And I tell you what, I really want—I had—I want you on this show because, I'd like to say, Rational Ground to me is one of those great—you know—I'm gonna use the word think tank because you guys got great data. Every—I mean, you collect the data, you do a nice job of putting it together, and you got people—you know—from different experiences—you know—putting it all together. So, right? Uh, you know? Yeah, so, I mean, look when, uh, we, when uh, we go uh,
3: through the. Go ahead.
2: But of course I'm gonna ask you, how did this come about? You know, you know, how did you guys uh, uh you well, know, part put of this it together? was
3: just looking at the, the part of was looking at the data and when it was first asserted that this was uh, going to be, you know, a, a nineteen eighteen pandemic, many of us were concerned. The initial data coming out, the initial data actually promoted by Doctor Fauci himself, indicated a one percent to three percent fatality rate. Uh, which would be drastic. It would be traumatic. It would be awful. Um, it turns out to be about a tenth of that. And so we, uh, 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 when when we looked at some of the data, we said something's not right. A lot of us uh, have our teeth into um, uh, funnels, whether it's science funnels or whether it's marketing funnels. And many of you will recognize this whole thing. It's kind of like a, uh, you know, an inverted pyramid. At the top, you have people that come to your website and. Uh, you try to attract them to a specific form, and then a certain amount of people fill out that form, and then a certain amount of people become potential customers, and it whittles on down to actual customers. Um, or, you know, in the case of the CDC, the way they look at influenza, you have a certain amount of people that get sick, and from that, a certain amount of people that are hospitalized, and from that, a certain amount of people that unfortunately die. And when they put forth the funnel for COVID, we said, these numbers look off. And so that was my first clue that something was amiss. And then we came to the lockdowns, right? And I think a lot of us, many of us, most of us were very keen to say, look, we, we don't know a lot about this disease. We need to take a, a two-week dramatic pause in the country to, to understand this better. I think a lot of us were keen to do so. Uh, but when they extended it, we realized, wait, something is, is very off here. Uh, because a well, I think what we've come to realize is that as, as well man, a man might put forth his you know, arm to to stop the Mississippi River as to stop a viral pathogen. Um, And the, what we call the NPIs, the non-pharmaceutical interventions, uh, like social distancing and masks and lockdowns, the three primary ones they've used. Uh, There is not a geography in the world, um, and frankly, in the United States, on the many, many counties, the many, many states we've tried it on, uh, which demonstrate any sort of... um, Uh, viability to to show that MPIs had a dramatic effect on the impact of the virus. And our assertion is that if we had spent all that time and energy on keeping people locked in and instead uh, converted that over to energy to protect the most vulnerable among us, we would have fared much better. Uh, In the case of the 1918 pandemic, we know that the median age of death was about 29 years old. Uh, Imagine if the average age of COVID was 29 as, as people fell to the ground. That would mean that thousands of infants and thousands of teenagers would be dead now. Instead, we know that the median age is higher than the median age of death for a regular average U.S. citizen. Now we still want to protect those people in, in specific ways. And that's something that was not done in New York. It wasn't done in uh, California wasn't done in many places, frankly, and uh, the vulnerable among us, especially those in nursing homes, took the brunt of the disease. Uh, One report out of Oswego County, uh, New York, yesterday indicated that almost 60 percent of all the deaths there came from nursing homes, which is sad and unfortunate and um, really dramatic. But a much different scenario um, than having uh, thousands of of teenagers and thousands of infants die uh, among us as well. Uh, a, a different yeah. scenario yeah. We also,
2: yeah mm-hmm. Go ahead Well, that thing Because what I want to really do here tonight Because is to really delve into the These numbers that we're talking That you're going kind to of be talking about and, and, and explain to people How they, these numbers came about How accurate are they Because I because I, I, when I I can tell you this much right now I can say in April When I was looking at some of John And the uh, of work In California you know, something kind of popped in mind. I said, Joe, you know, the infectious fatality rate popped in mind. Number one is way off. And number two, if you're reading his research and what was coming out of Sweden, what we're finding is that the majority of patients, you know, so that for every one patient we have, there's like 10 patients out there we don't know. And it kind of told me they're not going to the doctor's office because they don't feel sick or sick enough to go to the doctor's office. And I thought this was actually great news. That this may not be as lethal as we thought, you know. This was my first thought, and it just seems like, you know, and with the thoughts of others like Scott Atlas and and Martin Clunandorf uh, out of Harvard, among others, you know, they were seeing this, you know, and it was like, you know, you know, this should have been re- looked at as good news as opposed to to bad news or news to be ignored. Uh, you know, I want you to hold yeah, on it top was- because I want to be right. Yeah, we'll be right back, and I want you to kind of – we'll get back to this comments. Tom Donaldson here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelorette News Radio Network. Let's
4: go, Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse! Let's go, guys! Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up?
1: Of course. I I knew that.
4: Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary?
5: Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
4: Wow, Jinx <laughs> Did you guys know that friendly children have more friends?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah That's true, I knew that Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music?
4: Everyone knows that Oh yeah? <laughs> yeah. Pretty obvious Yeah, yeah. so yeah. obvious Oh, hey guys Did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid But they're not?
1: Huh, I didn't know that
4: I'm pretty sure I knew that I'm pretty sure you didn't Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council.
2: This is Tom Donaldson and the Donaldson Files on the Bastion News Radio Network. Uh, You can go to our website, newsradionetwork.com, and you can get some of our back back episodes anytime you want. Uh, For example, the... You can get a hold of our January 19th uh, edition, which you had Welf Riley and uh, Jim Eccles talking about where to go, with where to go from here in Black America. Or last week we had uh, on our Tuesday edition show we had Coco Konsky talking about sex workers and should it be legal and other and other things. So, so these are some of the back shows we can have. And on the Dr. Larry show, Resistance Hour. You know James Gilmore was on our show last week with some very interesting tidbits about foreign policy. It's worth going back and listening to that as well. all right okay back to okay now here's the thing i i am going throw let me you kind of said the numbers were off. When did you suspect what caused you to suspect this whole you know that you know something was amiss was there well, a it's
3: not so much that things were amiss. It was that the response was a miss, right? I, I think the, the, the point came when, uh, for me personally, was my clientele who were uh, mostly in high-end uh, a leisure space, right? I helped do data analytics and analysis and targeting and everything else for a client that uh, did high-end Florida uh, golf excursions for baby boomers. Business, gone, I did another client who did uh, high-end vacation club excursions for families. Dead. I went to uh, another client. That was my third major client who did – they did high-touch consulting for families whose kids were going to college. Dead, right? And so all of a sudden, my businesses were gone, and I thought, this is affecting me in a specific way. I have a right to speak up and understand what's happening. And when I went to look at the impact that the lockdowns had, uh, and I realized that we had never done anything like this before. We have always quarantined sick people. We never had gotten to quarantining healthy people. Uh, And I think somehow China kind of talked us into that uh, through their efforts where they literally welded people inside their homes and then came in later to find them all dead. Uh, And somehow our politicians thought that was a great idea. Later, it turns out, as the data showed, that 66% to 88% of all transmissions of the disease happen in domestic settings, that is, someone in your home. We also know that one of the major comorbidities that leads to complications of COVID are obesity and lack of vitamin D. And so whoever's policy it was to lock you inside of a house with someone else who may be sick, away from the sun, obtaining your natural dose of vitamin D, ordering delivery and carryout for a year to grow obese, and then on top of that, string the anxiety of not going to the doctor to check yourself out. That's insane, right? I'll give you one stat that no one has refuted, and it shows the sort of flip side of the coin of lockdown. 250,000 cases of child abuse were missed over last year or more. Why? Because kids weren't in school, which is the primary medium through which teachers know something's wrong with Johnny at home, and I've got to report it, right? Imagine that. In the middle of the spring, another stat which showed us right at the beginning of April and March where we said something's wrong because fewer people – are being diagnosed with cancer. COVID didn't cure cancer. People didn't go to the doctor to be diagnosed. They've now estimated that as high as 900,000 deaths will be attributed to just that short lull where people didn't get diagnosed in time. In fact, I would put it to your listeners and just to ask yourself over the past year, how many people you know who have died of COVID. You probably know maybe one or two. Uh, if you're unfortunate, maybe you know more. And it's super sad. and We should definitely mourn those deaths. Try to understand that. But now ask yourself, how many people you know that died of cancer or other diseases, and you were very surprised at that? I'll let them answer that question for themselves. But those were some of the stats that really stood out for us when we started looking at this stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, we've created our own social experiments now. 50% of infants did not receive the immunization. Some of those are very timely, and if they went beyond a certain point, they probably couldn't get them in a timely way. There are specific stats around the deaths that we saw from that,
2: which will far yeah. outweigh
3: any stats yeah. from uh, well, yeah, deaths yeah, of yeah, infants yeah. from COVID. Yeah.
2: Well, because this is the thing, because I remember making this statement in April. I said, we're going to end up killing more people with the lockdowns than we're going to end up saving, in that the The crash of the economy will do far more damage, both in mortality, and socially, than anything the virus could have done, and that's proven to be the case. Now I'm going to ask. I'm going to start beginning with this question with you. Is I know you read okay. We got four hundred eighty thousand people listed as dying with COVID, and I use the word with COVID. These are the numbers that the CDC and everybody are, are reporting. This is what the report reported. Now, I looked at like Colorado as an example. They're like the only state that I know of that has two sets of numbers. The numbers they say we report the CDC numbers, po- and they use the word "possibly." They don't use the word "we know." We say "possibly," and they range between ten and twenty percent. You're about you, know, you, you look at the range; it goes ten to twenty percent. And then we know Florida has their own data. Now, why, you know, the governor has yet to do what Colorado do, you know, is something – I wish he would do that. Uh, that would be very fascinating because he's talking 40%. Well, if you have 40%, off, You know, we're essentially talking 200,000 off deaths. Uh yeah, you know that's a lot. Of, well, look, I uh, mean, it, and it's still. I mean, and again, I want to emphasize to people we're talking, we're still talking like two hundred, three hundred thousand people dying from COVID, or you know because of COVID. So it's not in, but it is, but two hundred thousand off is a significant number for a public health uh, emergency to be off by. So first of all, yeah, am I on the right path? And what's your, you know, what is, what do you think? If somebody said to you, what would be your estimate of the truth of the true death because of COVID?
3: Well, two things. We looked at things from a high-level perspective, and we said, okay, well, how does the CDC regularly count deaths from viral pathogens like influenza? And the way they do that is they typically start with records from hospitalizations, and they move back up to actual positive cultures that were taken for people that had the flu. And then they estimate how many people from that were infected from doctor visits and everything else there. And then, you know, they also look at deaths on the other set spectrum, again, looking at sort of that funnel again. So in, in 2017, 18, which was one of the the highest influenza seasons we've had in recent years, uh, there were 44 million people starting at the top of the funnel who uh, were realized as probably, or who were estimated as having Uh, obtained the flu or gotten the flu. And from that, 22 million people went to the doctor. Uh, Of that, 800,000 of those people were hospitalized, and somewhere between 46,000 and 96,000 people died from influenza that year. Uh, When we take those same stats, a confirmed hospitalization, a confirmed positive culture test and everything else there, the CDC numbers, which just came out the other day, just earlier this week, uh, noted that we only can count for 126,276 deaths of people that we know were hospitalized and had a date for a specific positive test or an onset of illness, which is how you record these things. So if we're comparing apples to apples here, that's how you do it, right? Uh, there are another 200,000, 200 uh, actually 180,000 or so more deaths that the CDC had from last year. And a lot of those are just missing that information. In fact, we know for sure there are 120,000 deaths that have no record of a hospitalization. So those may have been nursing home deaths. We're not sure, right? We don't have a lot of those details. Mm -hmm. Now, we had the opportunity at Rational Ground to go and examine 700 death certificates in Florida to try to understand what we were seeing in the codification. And there's kind of, when you look at a death certificate, there are two parts to it. One of it is the immediate sort of points that caused death, and the second part are things that contributed to death. And we estimated that about 40% of those death certificates should never have been coded as COVID, right? And these were typically people that were already dying from something, and that's unfortunate, and it's possible that COVID may have prompted that over the edge, but for a vast, for a a good portion of these death certificates, which we examined, uh, many of them had no basis, in fact, to say, this was attributed to COVID. So they're sort of dying with COVID and dying of COVID. Uh, you might recall, for example, in the news this week, a certain congressman, uh, it said the headline was, uh, died after receiving a positive test from COVID, right? Well, he had been right. dying of lung cancer for the past four years. And, and it's unfortunate and sad for his passing. Possible that COVID may have prompted and exacerbated his issues, but he was well on his way to death's door, unfortunately, sadly. And the question, it becomes, it's not a question of what he died of or what he died of. Our question always comes back to, should you lose your job so that this man could possibly have lived in a few more months or maybe the hospitals would be overcrowded? The question is still unclear as to what it actually meant, right? Because there's no evidence anywhere geographically that lockdowns worked.
2: Okay, let me answer this question. Let me me kind of clarify it because what you're saying here – is there are like a hundred and twenty okay? That based on hospitalization, about 127,000 people who died were confirmed COVID cases. These were confirmed cases in the hospital, yeah. And yeah, we there's have about lead, about lead, a hundred and yeah, so 127,000 confirmed COVID cases, and then there, there were two, factors, right? Yeah, it was, a- yeah. And there's another 127,000. You
3: 170,000 deaths that were hospitalized, okay? Of those 170,000 deaths, 46,000 of them have no date associated with them as to when they got their positive test date or when they had an onset of illness. So it's basically just these were reported as deaths that may have been hospitalized and probably had COVID. So lots of just ambiguity in the data, and that's to be you know, expected in something that's new and everything else there. But we think that the 300,000 to 400,000 deaths that were claimed are much lower than what people expect.
2: Okay, so basically you, we, we can say there's 127, we can definitely say probably because of COVID, based on hospitalization. I, we we you, believe so, yeah, but, you, but, but even then, yeah. It's,
0: yeah, it's yeah. Now you can judge, look
2: at yeah. and there's like another 127,000 that you say died unexplained that were credited to COVID. But we, you know, but they're not, but they weren't hospitalized. So it could be nursing homes. Uh, and certainly the 127 deaths would approximately, in my view, be very close to that 40% uh, that, you know, nursing, you know, that were polite, you know, that others have looked at nursing homes. So could we at least say the worst case scenario, we're looking at 250,000. It's
3: still unclear, and we and it all depends on how you yeah. code it, and I know uh, there are there are actual professors at Stanford and elsewhere taking sabbaticals this year to figure this problem out. Um, part of it has to do with what the viral load is for different things. There are a lot of elements.
2: Well, here's the other question to me. Is this. You know, all right, you've looked at these autopsies, uh, Yeah. we had the, the congressman who just recently passed away has Yeah. You know, we know one thing, that 80%, you know, that most of these people, the average age is 80, and the CDC themselves have said about over 95% of these cases of deaths that they attributed to COVID, had mul- they all had multiple conditions, two at least two or three other condition underlying conditions. Correct. Right. And that has got to be how – and to me, this is to me the most – you know, in, you know, the difficult thing to do is trying to figure out: okay, did I die of a kidney infection? Did I die of bad kidneys, bad heart, uh, cancer, COVID? Uh, and and I want you to. We're going to follow up on that in here in a couple of seconds uh, here on the Bachelor News Radio Network on the Donaldson Files.
5: You might know me, I'm 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in the six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedingamerica.org hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council.
2: This is Tom Donaldson here, back uh, with Justin Hart on the Donson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. If you want to call in, 646-929-0130, 646-929-0130. All right. Now let's go back to, okay, like I left you in the lurch here, basically how you know, would a coroner be able to truly differentiate a COVID death or somebody with COVID who died of something else. Yeah, be it's
3: difficult to say. So yeah, here are some of the examples we have from the death certificates. Here's a 57-year-old male, part one of the death certificate indicated coronary artery heart disease, part two, asymptomatic COVID positive swab. Here's another one, 85-year-old male, ischemic cardiomyopathy, part two, chronic kidney disease, COVID-19, right? i uh, got another one here, 74-year-old female, the first part, accident, COVID part one, a COVID infection in bronchial aspergillus, complicating sequelae blood force injury of the right lung. Part two, diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, obesity, right? Uh, well, me, I mean, me, I'm give you examples.
2: <laughs> right. yeah, right. yeah, let me ask you a quick yeah, question on that. Did you say she was in a car accident?
3: Yeah, she was in a car accident. And, and she was logged as a COVID death. Uh, and it says that, uh, COVID-19 exacerbated, uh, pro, you know, th- these issues here. And, and, but, but in the end she failed for multiple issues, but primarily she was in an accident, blunt force injury.
2: Yeah. So basically we really don't know.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. that's, uh, well, yeah. And
3: that's what all these, you know, a lot of these come off just like that. Right. Uh, Here's an 87-year-old female, senile generation of the brain, part two, complications related to COVID-19 infection. Uh, Here's uh, another one, 82-year-old female, uh, failure to thrive, depression. Failure to thrive is another one we found very prominently throughout all these elements, which is someone who is in a nursing home, and because of the lockdown issues, primarily, failure to thrive in that environment. And so you know, pretty traumatic stuff as you go through these things and you realize there's so much here that makes no sense, no reason why you would ever include this in a COVID nineteen death. Now, you might log it, right, and you want to know, well we we'll here are all the people that died who died with a positive COVID test. But when the news gets a hold of this the next day and they say, well, two hundred people died yesterday in Florida and you realize there was so much wrong with that statement then it exacerbates the issues and keeps people locked down and it doesn't give a a true picture as to what's happening. And that's our main issue. We always come back to the lockdowns and to the impact that it has on people because the impacts are pretty dramatic. Uh, I mentioned just a a few of the the pieces that we found from all the studies that are out there. Um, But, you know, the, the impact, for example, they did a study um, because you can actually correlate the lack of education to years of life loss. That is, uh, we know that people that have a lower attainment of education, if they don't uh, complete high school, for example, their average age of death goes up dramatically. That is, they they actually have a lower age of death. They'll die earlier in life. And and whether it's 168,000 children dying from hunger in Africa because of disruption of the food chain, um, or whether it It's estimated that 2.3 million additional child deaths this year worldwide from lockdowns, low-income students suffering an ongoing class size, uh, decreased access to health care, domestic violence skyrocketing. The list goes on and on. You can find it on our website there, rationalground.com. Increase in fentanyl
2: overdoses, suicides, and the like. Okay, let's uh, follow. You just did a study. I think it was uh, Emily. I cannot think. It was uh, Emily Blum. Is she the one that did the study? Uh, Yes. Looking at race? Yeah. Uh, What was your, what was her conclusion dealing with, okay, red state, blue states, and overall mortality of, you know, black and Hispanics in those states?
3: Yeah, well, what we found is that, you know, these are people who typically have jobs that um, were deemed essential, right, whether that's uh, working uh, blue collar uh, jobs, and, and so they were more at risk for uh, exposure to COVID. We also know, based on our information, that again, domestic transmission of the disease is the primary means for which it spreads. And uh, the typical home space that that, uh, uh, some minority uh, and and regional places have, especially in like New York City where the density is so compact, led to additional efforts there as well. And, And so truly when you look at the impact on black Hispanic and Asians, it's, it's pretty traumatic. Um, and it, it leads to the issue that virtual learning virtual work is a luxury of um, the middle and upper class.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. So basically, okay, all right, let me put it this way. If somebody said to you, uh, where did black Hispanics uh, did worse, you know, death-wise. Blue states, red states. You know, if somebody say ask you that question, put it that way.
3: Well, I, I don't know that it's that simple. I think we've actually demonstrated that uh, if you are yeah. in a red state, your chances of uh, succumbing to um, to COVID nineteen were actually reduced in certain places. They did obtain the majority of cases in red states, uh, but also I think what we find is that. It's, it's not so much a, a red state thing, it's a policy. We know that, for example, even though Ohio is seen as a red state, its policies were very lockdown adherent. And we think there's a strong correlation between lockdown states and exacerbated issues among the populace.
2: So basically what you're saying is the lockdown versus non-lockdown may be the biggest factor. As we believe as so. density of population. Yeah. yeah. Well,
3: density, actually, there's not a strong correlation between density – Uh, of population and an increase of deaths or hospitalizations or anything. It's more just along the lines of um, what, uh, you know, on a race or ethnic basis, if you have uh, lower square footage in your home and otherwise you're more likely to contract the disease from others that have it as well.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, okay. Here, okay. Let me take this. Let's kind of take a little bit of a, Different direction, okay. So basically, you know you, you dealt with it. I thought it was a pretty good study that you did. I think it's, you know, worth. and what is Emily? You know, where does she live? Does she live in California, or because I know you got people all over. Uh,
3: yeah, I got them all over the place. I can't. I think actually she's in the Northeast.
2: Now let me. Okay, so basically we're overestimating the death by a pretty good margin, uh, and it's not so simple because obviously you know you know why you know, lockdown versus not lockdown the impact you you are staying very clear there's an impact definitely on you know minorities for example that they they did far worse in lockdown versus non-lockdown states you know when it came down to actually being safer now the other question I would throw back how about education you know there was uh, I mean uh, there was a study that a, a gentleman wrote a series wrote a very good article he was from the Freedom Forum, which is an Oregon think tank about education and how it's been devastating across the board the children. Uh,
3: yeah, we, we believe it. it has been and um, it continues to be. In fact, America is kind of the exception here. It's been, um, if you go across seas, schools are wide open in many ways. Here in the United States, the last log that we have from earlier this week was that uh, 35% of Kids are in virtual-only school, and uh, 25% are in hybrid. So only 40, less than 40% of students, K through 12, are actually yeah. in school in person every day, which is really unfortunate uh, because you see the, um, the impact it has uh, on our kids, which is not insignificant. Um, you know, just to, to go through some of the stats and the things that we see the effect on, on children, uh, we see that there are you know, major health concerns, major economic and poverty concerns, lots of mental health concerns as well. Uh, we, we know that a third of uh, students have some ideation towards suicidal ideation. That's massive increases in, in that as well. We know that uh, a survey of college students have been locked down, isolation of children risking their poor adult uh, health as far as mentally and physically Ah, uh, we know increase in obesity, child obesity. Uh, one in four young adults have seriously considered suicide. One in five U.S. adults have developed mental disorders. These are all studies that have been done in the last six months.
6: hmm
2: Okay, uh, let's go. so you know so these are so basically what we're really seeing. Now, let me put it in this capacity. How? does this impact minorities versus let's say because you say 40 percent classes where are those classes and and would you say who's been impacted the more those urban centers where you have a lot of minority children versus uh let's say uh, where you probably live uh, in a cal you know california where you probably live where you have a fairly good
3: Yeah, no, I, yeah. I think in the urban centers we know in particular, because um, a lot of centralized teachers' unions have used this opportunity uh, to obtain more pay or more benefits or otherwise, and so we're seeing that dramatic impact. Um, definitely affects uh, minorities in, in comparison.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, let me put it this because what's this? Let me let me ask you this question this way, and then we'll, yeah, you know, once you get started, then I. For, I want you to give me kind of a couple minutes summary and then we're going to follow up on this. What does the science say about schooling and children? The well, science.
3: the science is, is, yeah, the science is very clear that uh, there's a very rare case, very, very rare cases of massive transmission in schools. Um, schools have been open for uh, a long time in specific states and the studies they've done there, the CDC admits straight up that schools should be open there's no reason to close schools because transmission of kid to kid and kid to teacher is rare and lower than the, the regular population uh so we believe the risks are very very low there and especially for kids who uh you know have a very um they, they don't have a dramatic impact from this disease
2: okay now, now what let me put I want you, we're going to kind of come on the other side because I want you to get started and think of it this way. What will be the impact on somebody's life, uh, job wise, education wise, income wise? You know, what's the data saying that missing this much school has been missed? What's going to be the impact? And, I'll, and I'm going to kind of take a quick break here in the Donaldson Files and the Bachelor News Radio Network simply because. Yeah, you know, I don't want you to get started and then have to uh, break you off.
4: I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots.
2: I don't have time. We're all
4: healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids
1: are too the old for flu. The media is exaggerating. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov.
4: A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.
2: And we're back on the Dawson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, Again, you can get these great shows on the Bachelor News Radio Network dot com. And this, hopefully, this show, uh, you'll be able to get this show sometime later next week. Uh, Okay, now, the impact on education. What is the data saying about the impact on future earnings uh, by missing this much school? Is there any details on that?
3: Yeah, there are. There are actually, um, even more so than understandings for the impact on income loss,
2: are actually the
3: years of life loss. This is actually a pretty standard measurement. It's called YLL, years of life lost. And the idea is if you take the median age of death at 80 years old, and let's say someone dies who is 75. That is five human years lost to our society and lost to that person. And then when you look at it uh, from a more stringent point of view, you say, let's say an infant lost their life to influenza. That would be 80 years of life lost. We also know that there uh, is an acute correlation uh, between the education that one attains or does not obtain uh, and your pro of life. That is, if, if you attain a, a lower set of education standard, then you would typically see yourself dying earlier for various reasons, whether natural or unnatural. And from one estimated yeah. study that was done by the in a, in a, uh, by several economists, it was estimated that uh, children would see about we'd see about 5.1 million years of life lost to our children just for the impact of missing school for a
2: short amount of time. Okay, so this is going to have a – could have a definitely impact on the future of these children. And certainly you know, everything I've read is that when they – is that many of these children are now falling further behind when they start testing them out. And what they're learning or not learning, that they're not – that they're falling even further behind than where they were, let's say, a year ago. Yeah, when well, you correct? think about
3: it, for example, uh, a, a a student, let's say they were a junior last year a promising football uh, career ahead of them. Uh, No football played last year. No football played this year. No recruiters coming to check them out. Get a little obese. Life trajectory changes in dramatic ways, something they've been training for their entire lives. Um, we, We know of actual stories where kids have taken their own lives because of the loss of attainment there. And there you go. You know, you have sort of the impact that that has on someone's trajectory in life, how they have to make new life changes, how that affects their family, how that affects other people as well. Uh, it, 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 you know, the, the whole thing we're trying to get to is that uh, it's kind of a, the effect of, of butterflies and hurricanes, right? You, you think you're making a small change uh, by, you know, make masking people up or by making people locked down but the actual impact on lives is pretty traumatic and it infects uh, things that you wouldn't imagine. So for example, you know, when when we saw the, the huge run on toilet paper towards the stores, uh, it wasn't that they ran out of toilet paper. It was that all of a sudden the paper industry had to shift their manufacturing in massive ways. Uh, if you will, half of all the quote business that you and I do uh, in the bathroom yeah. is done At business work, right? It's done in buildings. It's done in uh, corporate America. When those buildings shut down, uh, they had to somehow steer all those massive manufacturing reams of toilet paper that go towards industrial bathroom settings and shift it back to the home. Well, that infected employers all the way down the line, and every industry could speak to those things as well. You think, for example, friends you might know in event marketing, jobs, gone gone for probably the next mm-hmm. two or three years or more. And so these things have a ripple effect that people don't understand and it leads to, you know, one estimation from uh, a, a professor who has studied this his entire career is that for every drop in the percentage of, un- of employment that we see, that is for for every point uptick in unemployment that we see in the country, you can expect over the course of the next 10 years 40,000 Additional deaths.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Whether through,
3: you know, now let's get... alcoholism, abuse, substance abuse, or just lack of health care and the like.
2: Now, let's go up to the vaccine because uh, now we have the you know, Pfizer and Moderna uh, Modera, uh, vaccine, but we also got, I think, Johnson Johnson. I know AstraZeneca has got one as well. And, and I think, again, you know, there's two aspects to me with vaccines. Number one, when somebody says it's 95, percent and you're testing the healthy patients, to me the real world situation is going to be, you know, far lower. And number two, if you have any side effects, people are not going to jump in board, jump on board, and say, "Let's go give me a second shot, so I can really feel bad." <laughs> and so, yeah, it, it looks, and, it's some uh, the. You know, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say question. that it I think. I think. Go ahead yeah I guess my question I'm going to throw back to you is this number one to me vaccines are a necessity if for no other reason to comp, you know just to get people back to working again or feeling less fearful but uh and they certainly play a role yeah and I just think you know well that's my yeah go ahead now, go ahead
3: that's my feeling I, too, I, I i've i've been uh you know thinking hard about vaccines. Uh, and I'm, I'm not an anti-vax person in the least. I, I get my kids vaccinated. I do it on a more of an elongated schedule because uh, I don't like my kids getting five or six shots at one time. But I get them all the shots they need, uh, except for this last time when I had an infant who couldn't get their shots because they couldn't go to the doctor. But uh, regardless, when we see these vaccines come up, I think there's some promising things in them. And if it if it gets us back to normal, I'm, I'm all for that. Uh, the problem is setting expectations uh, for The influenza vaccine or flu shots that you might get on a seasonal basis, that only reduces the typical fatalities that we see from a seasonal season by about 10 to 15 percent. I don't know if people know that. Now, it does prevent the spread, which is a positive thing. We think that it uh, will help people from uh, getting it. Uh, And there is some evidence to show that even some of the vaccines could indeed uh, prevent or stop some of the, the spread by people uh, getting less viral infections and, and spreading it around. And so I think in general, it's a positive thing. Now, the question is going to be, is this going to be another case of Charlie Brown and Lucy holding the football? Uh, that is to say, they've promised us that once the vaccine was here, we could all start getting back to normal. But now we're told again and again, that that's not, that's not the case. You need to keep vaccine up. You need to keep masking up and otherwise. Uh, and I think it's a dreadful decision that, that needs to be pulled back. We need to basically hold them to their word. The vaccine is here. Let's get back to normal life.
2: Yeah. I, well, I can say I mean, that to me is the whole aspect is whether or not we're actually going to be allowed to get back to normality. Because I'll, I'll go back. Because to me, like I, said, I have, you know, like I said, I'm at that age where, quite honestly, you know, I'm eligible for the vaccine. And. And I guess I've got, I'm going to be seeing my family practice uh, next week. And, and, and I, and I really wanted to, it's one of those things I want to kind of talk to him first and say, you know, what do you think? Is it worth, you know, it, you know, what has your experience has been? been? And I do have have talked to other people. Uh, and it seems like, uh, you know, there is some side effects, but as one person said to me, I said, I'd rather get that than get COVID or get sick or at least get back to my life. And I just think there's, you, you made the case for It's like Charlie Brown, We're going to take the football away from you. Because I don't see any effort on everybody saying, let's get back to normal. I mean, if, you know, we get back to normal. And that is what bothers me in all of this, because we're talking about a virus that kills two per 1,000 to begin with. And, yeah. And, and whether or not there's virus, the vaccine is imperfect. To me, it's irrelevant if you can reduce the chances of viral infections, let's you do with the flu, and you have reduced the chances of death, so be it. Now the other question, yeah you know, here's the other thing I would love to be it'd be interesting to see what happens is that uh is how many of these vaccines because I've always stated to me this is like the first group of vaccines. This is like the first generation. And we're now starting And to me, the more vaccines we have, the more we do this, the better these products will be in the future, you know, and and because, like, for example, I know with, like, Johnson Johnson, you know, you're looking at a vaccine you can just take once, that's it. And to me, that's a convenient thing right off the bat, having to go back for a second shot. And you're going to get more people doing that, at least getting that protection. And my question is. Now, here's my question I'm going to throw back here. Do you think the FDA is going to be satisfied with what they have in the market and give, let Pfizer make their billions, or are they going to be smart enough to say let's get as many of these vaccines out as possible?
3: It's still unclear an immense volume of individuals, uh, far more than you would see on a normal testing regime for any sort of drug coming to market or a vaccine for that matter. But we don't know the time factor impact of this thing, right? What what impact does this have down the road? How viable is it? How efficient is it? We just haven't had that time to, um, you know, to see. There's, there's no cliff notes for skipping time when it comes to vaccine testing. So will they be satisfied with these effects? But we have more and more coming to market. And the question is um, one of viability for future vaccines, that is to say, uh, or for countering future elements. The We know that there have been reports of various variants that are making their way across the globe, one from South Africa, one from, uh, I believe, uh, Spain. I can't remember where they're all coming from. But essentially, these variants um, might target something very different in the body. Um, And we know that two or three of the vaccines have all targeted the same specific gene. That is, if you're looking at you know the picture of a corona, uh, as of a coronavirus in your brain, that little spiked uh, viral blob that we've all seen. Uh, the protein spike on there is what they're targeting. But it's possible there are other genes that may have an impact, even if you are able to counter that spike. And that's the question we have to come to now. I don't want to get to the point where all of a sudden, like some type of upgrade on your computer you have to go in and get another set of shots to counter it, especially when the virus is so
2: comparably low. Yeah. Well, I mean, here, yeah, like I guess it, because like I said, there's so much here. I know we're getting, you know, we're in the last about seven or eight minutes of the show and there's so much more that you, we can talk about this because my view has always been you have a virus that kills two per thousand, you get a vaccine, get it out in the market. Um, uh, and you know, just let the market decide. Because to me, COVID is going to be the coronavirus as we know it is going to be around for a while. Uh, I just think it's going to be part of who we are, much the same way the influenza has been for the past century, and a half, you know, for the past century and a half with uh, as well. I mean, we've always had an influenza season. It's been there, and that's just its life. We've adapted to it. We'll adapt to this. But it's almost like these, right. you know, it's like ne- never let a crisis go to waste. Uh, yeah, which brings me to one of the, now you and I have had this discussion, but I really want to follow this up because I've not heard anybody talk about this at all. This also has policy implications. In 2018, about 50, 60, about 50 million plus people got the flu, and then it dissipated. Uh, 80, you know, 50 to, to 60,000, or it 60 to 80,000 died. In that flu season, 2018, that's just two years ago. And that, to me, would be a serious flu pandemic. But, you know, we basically had 20% of the population didn't dissipate. I'm going to estimate, I mean, if, if the numbers are correct, we're looking at 120 to 150 million minimum have been infected with coronavirus. And and, and I yeah, don't know I, whether I, or not yeah. – and my question I'm going to throw back to you what the, what are the experts that you talk to are telling you is is this a result of the you know the novel of this virus, or by locking things down, we pushed the virus into the respiratory season? It made it worse or is that kind of I think about? the latter
3: for sure in my opinion, I think that uh, what we find is that uh, when you sort of elongate uh, the, the outlay of the disease by not going through the gauntlet or avoiding the gauntlet, because everyone needs to go through the gauntlet, uh, then you're basically exacerbating the issues that placate your society. Um, we ended up yeah. with about 800,000 hospitalizations last year from 26 oh, sorry, from uh, I, you know, some odd million uh, cases that were confirmed. And so uh, we had in the 2017-18 season, we had 800,000 hospitalizations as well, and about the same number of infections. And so we think that there's a larger asymptomatic population out there, that is people that have it that had no idea they had it. And the question is going to be, when do you reach sort of herd immunity based on uh, previous coronavirus or previous uh, virus exposure and what happens there? We just don't know. There's a lot of unknowns here. And it's, it's frankly troubling that, um, you know, our experts are so baffled by so many things here. Uh, we were very ill prepared for dealing with this, especially on the public policy side,
2: and that's become apparent. Yeah, well let me ask you what because yeah, that to me is the other apparent because, you know, like I said, I really want to delve into with this conversation with you and I've been dealt with others as well. Is and this to me has been the complete implosion of the scientific class. It's not that they were ill prepared, because I'm not gonna yeah, I'm not going to play Monday morning quarterback because what we know, we didn't know in let's say March or, and we certainly knew the Chinese have been lying to us all along and wanted, you know, and wanted to push us into a certain direction. And but it was almost like we have ignored the science as it evolved and never made any adjustments to it. And our scientific class has been unwilling they have that kind of scientific discussion where a Scott Atlas can be part of the discussion as opposed to being considered the outlier, and, you know, and treated like yesterday's news. Whereas Tony Foster, who I think has been wrong almost from day one, you know, I mean he basically changes with the wind, but he was wrong on the lethality in March. He was been right. wrong on school children until recently. He's been, you know, he's been back and forth on the masks. Yeah, uh, I mean, and even too, now we're double masking, and now he's saying there's no double masking. I mean, he changes on that as well. But this is a guy on the two biggest issues, the impact of the lockdown and the lethality of the virus.
1: He missed happened?
2: both of those by a wide margin. He missed those by a wide margin. Yeah. Gotcha. And, yeah. And, and my view is – and this is why I, I really want to kind of you know, – like I said, we only got a couple of minutes left here, and this is something I really want to bring uh, you back on the show. My time is expired
3: there. Hey, I, I all oh. of a sudden my uh, uh, the the
2: kiddos just okay. walked in, and I've got kiddo duty here that I've got to run to. Okay, well I'll tell you what. I mean, what I'd like to have you because here's what I really want to have you and others come on the show for, is the scientific class, in my view, imploded, and. It's not just imploding, but it was almost as if we're not even going to listen to other points of view. Our points of view is right, and if it's not right, we'll make it right. And the and and you literally have seen people not get published, the outliers, and that's going to be bad for science when you can't even have a good, solid debate within the scientific community when things no, are changing you as can't. quickly. It's really well. Let's, yeah. let's
3: let's set a time. We'd love to come back up and talk with you, but I think. Uh, yeah. you know, look, there's, I, yeah. there's so much that's going on with these things, but we'll have to see where it comes up. But Tom, thanks for your time.
2: Well, thank you, sir. We'll have to, we'll bring both you or, or some of your staff members, because like I said, I want to keep exploring this, not just the virus itself, but the state of our science here in the United States and the impact it's going to be. Uh, so uh, I, I thank you for taking your time. I'll let you back to Kitty's duty. That's uh, uh, okay. Thanks. Uh, just at heart. Uh, rational ground. He'll be back and joining us in the future. Great conversation. He's His organization group is one of the expertise dealing with. And, uh, and so I want to – but like I said, I want to kind of summarize this. The reason I had Justin on this particular show is for this simple reason, because there's a lot of numbers out there we see, but there are numbers that you have to sit back and look at and say – are they right or are they wrong? If they're wrong, we're going to end up with bad policy, which we have done. We have basically instituted very bad policies that have impacted the economic side of the equation. It's impacted the, the lethality side of the equation, and we are looking at policies that will have impact on us for the next several years. This is Tom Donaldson here, here on the Donaldson Files the Wednesday edition, the Resistance edition, saying good night. Thank you.
6: Trumpet. You know, it's the resistance hour with Dr. Larry and Tom Donaldson, and I'm Dr. Larry Pitawa. We're uh, your co hosts for the uh, evening. Uh, tonight, uh, we're going to start uh, our conversation with uh, Dr. David Rare, who is a, uh, a professor at uh, the George Mason University and also a very experienced uh, uh, in. Uh, Dennison of uh, Capitol Hill, and uh, and uh, we will now uh, and and we want to talk to. We're going to start at least talking about the uh, impeachment trial that started uh, yesterday and is uh, going on uh, the rest of this uh, week, I guess, and next week. So uh, Tom Donaldson is our uh, co-host and. Uh, uh, David, uh, welcome to the uh, Re- Resistance Hour.
7: Welcome, Larry, and thanks for having me.
6: So um, maybe we could start, uh, 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 David, t- telling um, telling the audience a little bit more about uh, what your background or at least what you're interested in now. They know that if you weren't a great uh, expert, you wouldn't be on the show, but we still <laughs> would like to tell them a little yeah, bit more. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. <laughs>
7: Um, I am a professor at George Mason University located in Northern Virginia. I teach lobbying and leadership. I was a lobbyist on Capitol Hill for 25 years representing small business organizations, the Beer Distributors of America, and the National Association of Broadcasters before I became an academic. I have a Ph.D. in economics also from George Mason under the tutelage of Walter, the late Walter Williams who taught some great free market principles, had great professors who really grounded me into looking at what's real and what's not real in the economy and what's important and why incentives matter so much. And I now, as a professor there, also have a center called the Center for Business Civic Education with the idea of what practices in business in business can be, be applied to government to make it work more effectively and more efficiently and serve the needs and values of the American people. And just recently, last week, we announced a robotic process automation initiative because many of your listeners may not be aware, but business has successfully thrived and become better over the last few years by using the best things in robotic technology and artificial intelligence so many things that people do that are mundane, that are boring, that make your life at work miserable, now can be done by robots robots, and freeing you to do more high-value things. And in the case of the public sector, I see it as a way to get people in government now and in the future to really focus on the values and needs and the services provided by our programs and initiatives at the federal, state, and local level, and not focus on Typing in people's email addresses and often them getting often getting them wrong, and having to re-input them again.
6: Boy, that's exciting. Um, uh, I like. I think we ought to get. We'd like to get a little bit more into that. But uh, first of all, uh, I'm sure that uh, Tom has uh, some uh, ideas and questions about. Uh, about the uh, trial that we're we're showing nowadays. So what? Um, well, well, what do you well, have actually, to say, Tom?
2: Have, <laughs> the only question I have, I don't really have a question. I'm still trying to find the impeachable. I mean, this is like the second impeachment that we're still searching for an impeachable offense. Unless giving political speeches, uh, telling your vote, you know, telling your list, you know, telling your followers go fight for your cause has now become an insurrection. So maybe, uh, Dave, you can explain to me, because I have to be honest with you, I've not watched any of this. I've gotten myself to a point where uh, I've seen this, heard this before, and I'm still looking for the impeachable offense. Can you find it for me?
7: Yeah, well, I think we maybe should (laughs) – I don't want to replow previous ground, but a lot of your listeners may not know what's the constitutional basis for this impeachment – what are the charges and what people are saying yesterday and today? And I like to start out in talking to my students about impeachment, that it's clearly a political act. They refer to it as a trial, and you'd think you get witnesses, you swear people in, you get testimony, it's all done under under, under oath, and none of that is true. It is a political event, and in this case, I believe it's a, an event used by one party, to try to stifle someone in another party for the sole purpose of not having them the ability to run again for public office. Second, if you watch the last two days, I watched it today. I finally had to turn it off when Eric Swalwell, who recently was outed as a honeypot for a Chinese communist spy, was one of the managers of the impeachment trial and making all these claims against president Trump. And I thought to myself as an American, you know, I don't really know what he did with this Chinese spy. She raised money for him. She got an intern in his office. He continued his relationship with her only until the FBI met with him and said, you better be careful because we think she's a Chinese spy. And then she fled the country back to China. And I thought, wow, what a, what a hypocrisy here. That is, and he still sits on the –
6: That's and he the worst still, I'm you sorry. Can think of.
7: Yeah, and he still sits yeah. on the – uh, the uh, intelligence committee, where he has sole access to America's most vital and most secret secrets.
2: Yeah. Well, here's the. You know, I, I, I I'm, I'm going to be somewhat sarcastic here, and then and probably inappropriate, but you know, I, I got. You know, but I have to say, you. When you I'm looking at Eric Stonewall and I think the lady was Fang Fang or something, or that was her nickname. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I think it was March. Mike Stern, Mark Stein, Stein, who basically said something like, yeah, here we are, you know, banging the bang fang. And I thought to myself, this sounded more like a Mel Brooks movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I
7: mean, it's, it's, it's terrifying if it wasn't so true. I mean, China yeah. is, and I'll get back to impeachment, but China is emerging as one of our major competitors, if not our major competitor in the world. It has global aspirations. It is run by a communist government, which now imprisons people of a certain religious group. It takes organs from people and sells them on the black market, and they do a lot of bad things. And we're not supposed to say, what's going on in China? Why are they violating human rights? And Eric Swalwell is constantly jumping up and down on the floor of the House, uh, saying it's okay. China's not a problem. We should really look at Russia. And Russia really is... I don't know everything that they're, they're doing because I'm not privy to national secrets, but Russia is really one-tenth. I mean, if we didn't talk about about Russia, no one in the world would be talking about Russia. Anyway, back to well, impeachment. Actually, so, you, go ahead. I'm sorry,
2: yeah. Tom. So the critical thing of Russia is this. If Russia didn't have nuclear weapons, it would be a, uh, essentially a third-world country. Right. Well, that's essentially it.
7: Right, right. So let me get back to impeachment. So, number one, it's political. It's all political. And if you have the votes, you're right. And if you don't have the votes, you're wrong. Now, the good news about our Constitution is it starts in the House. They had a process for two days. They voted, I believe, close to party lines on this. I think a few Republicans crossed over, but mostly party lines, and sent it to the Senate and wanted to get it there before the Senate ended its session on and start a new session after January, January 1, so Trump would still be president. And they were delayed, and there were some problems for not getting it there. But then they marched triumphantly over to the Senate when Trump was no longer president, a private citizen of the United States, and no private citizen of the United States has ever been brought up, in my mind, on impeachment charges before the House and the Senate until now. So that should tell you a lot. Secondly, secondly, political process. Secondly, the. I want to be fair because I'm a professor and I try to listen to both sides. But a lot of what they're saying, you're looking for the where's the where. What did Trump do to incite people to insurrection and basically destroy the Capitol, take over the government – now, there was a mob, and I condemn the mob. I think they should all be prosecuted. I worked in that building. I was walking down those same halls years ago, and there's no reason why every American should not be allowed to tour the Capitol safely. All American members of Congress should be allowed to be in the Capitol safely and do the, the people's business.
6: Okay, so I'm David, not defending can, of that. David, can you hold that thought? We're, yeah. Uh, you're listening to the uh, Resistance Hour on the. Uh, your News Radio Network dot com.
1: I never
4: get the flu. My kids don't need more shots.
6: I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's
4: under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. But it's not a big deal. My kids
1: are too old for flu. The media is
4: exaggerating. I can fight it naturally.
1: No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong vaccinate learn more at flu.gov
4: a message from the u.s department of health and human services
1: since buffalo wild wings is always open late here are a few things you'll enjoy buzzer beaters wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings and great deals on food and beer grab select domestic draft beers starting at four dollars four dollar shareables like street tacos fried pickles chili queso dip mozzarella sticks and roasted garlic mushrooms and deals on select liquor and house cocktails Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late-night action. Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void Voidware prohibited.
6: You're listening to the Resistance Hour with uh, Dr. Larry and Tom Notlinson and on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And uh, we're li- talking to uh, Dr. David Rare tonight. Uh, and, uh, Dave, pick up, uh, pick up your thought. You were, yeah. uh, we're interrupted you. Uh, by our commercial here.
7: Yeah, no, thanks, Larry. So, number one, it's political. Number two, uh, it's, the vote predicts the winner. So if you have the votes, you win. You're impeached. If you don't have the votes, you're not impeached. And three, if you look at the Constitution, it says to remove the president from office. And here's the big conundrum. He's no longer in office. Now, they voted on the constitutionality of it, and they voted, I think, 56 to 44 that it was constitutional, which I found a little disturbing that a lot of senators need to go back and reread the Constitution. But most of them voted no and said, we don't want to set up a process by which we don't like someone in office or near the end of their term, and then whatever party's in power, the opposition party then in a majority incites impeachment and says we should remove the person. Uh, And then fourthly, you know, when I was listening to the arguments uh, of, of the advocates, you know, there's a lot of circumstance, there's a lot of symbolism. It was mostly in my mind, and I'm not totally objective on this, but I try to be, it seemed like a big CNBC commercial of all the things we don't like about Donald Trump and let's replay them for the audience. Adding the extra gratuitous statements made to senators to try to win their votes. Uh, And then number four, I do think the Trump lawyers were weak the first day. I don't know what they were thinking. I'm not a lawyer. I'm an economist. But I thought you should make the point, show us the statements and show us the cause effect where President Trump said something and it had an effect this way. That, to me, would be real evidence of a problem. But instead it was he set the scene. He refused to, to acknowledge the, re, the election results. He told his people he was robbed. You know, he kept tweeting out that it was just, it was this rigged election. You know, I know it's politically unpopular to talk about how it was a rigged election, but I grew up in Chicago, and in Chicago you learn in a very early age when Mayor Daley was mayor that dead people voted, yeah. and we always thought it was You're natural right. for dead people voted. But I do think there is some evidence. It may not have affected the outcome, and I'm not saying the outcome would be different. But we learned a lot of problems that we have with elections by this whole process that we have to fix to maintain our integrity in the next two years. We know that 19,000 dead people voted in Nevada, I think. I think that's the number. Or 35,000 all voted from the same address. I find it really suspicious that that's true. Anyway, We now have the Trump lawyers making the argument, and there was one of the lawyers was talking about the difference between a misdemeanor and a murder. And I'm like thinking, what are you talking about? There was no misdemeanor. There was no murder. I mean, innocent people died. Uh, There was a sufficient lack of preparedness by the Capitol Hill police, by the D.C. mayor, and by the Speaker of the House, who were now all warned about possible mob riots before the September 6th event. So it's not like it came upon a surprise as anyone that there could be a problem. And we further learned, although I can't collaborate this independently, that there were members of other movements who weren't Trump voters, who weren't Republicans, who were there also instigating trouble. So where do we stand after today? We stand with the Democrats saying he's guilty, he's guilty, jumping up and down, he's guilty, most, if not all, the Republicans saying he's not guilty, it doesn't rise to the crime uh, to, to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. And no matter what you say, it just do, doesn't rise to that, so we're voting to acquit him. The good news about the Constitution is that you only can impeach someone with two-thirds of the vote. And like everyone in Washington knows, this is just a stage play, that the Democrats yeah. are making their points because they want to remind the American people – with free media as much as they are possible that Donald Trump is a loser, he shouldn't vote he shouldn't run or get or be the nominee, nominee again, although I, I don't think he will, but he should be prohibited from running again because frankly they're a little afraid of what he's done in getting the 74 million votes across America. Uh, and I also think that we're going to have the vote when it's over. he's going to be acquitted. the media will then figure out a way, to get statements from people to say how bad it was. And the only thing I can say personally that I was very ashamed of as an American citizen as and as a former Capitol Hill employee, and this is my own opinion, and you might not agree with me, but those members of the House who had a special order talking about how traumatized they were being inside their offices and people banging on the doors – and one of the members accused Ted Cruz of wanting to murder her, just saying the most outran- outlandish things and being covered in generating media and saying, you know, all Republicans are secessionists, And, you know, it was mob violence. And just in retrospect, I think the summer of violence across the U.S., I lived outside of Minneapolis. There's been $600 million worth of damage. Innocent African-Americans were killed. A police sink was burned down. Over 700 police officers across this country have been injured by these riots, and they don't seem to matter. What seems to matter is a member of Congress who felt threatened because somebody was banging on their door. Anyway, yeah. back to you, Larry or or Tom.
6: Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things that that is <clears throat> relevant and is just sort of coming out now, uh, there was a. Uh, very long and uh, complicated and comprehensive review of the whole voter, so-called voter fraud uh, problem uh, that was uh, sponsored or was uh, hosted by uh, Mike Lindell, who is the uh, CEO and founder of uh, the Pillow Company.
7: My Pillow, yeah.
6: And um, uh, they were they went through. Uh, it was very tedious. They they went through uh, a uh, an audit that started with each individual per, uh, vote that was that was uh, cast in a particular uh, in in the, the, the uh, precincts that they that they uh, they studied, which were actually representative of 27 different uh, states. And they followed those those uh, individual votes through the entire process to show how they actually were changed. Uh, they became uh, part of a uh, revenues of a uh, data stream, which uh, it was actually uh, uh, warehoused in in uh, first in Fran- in uh, Spain and then in Germany, and uh, was. Uh, uh, blatantly uh, changed. It, you, you came away with from that uh, audit with a clear understanding that the uh, uh, that uh, Mr. Trump really had won the election and that it really was stolen. And as, uh, as we talked uh, earlier in uh, uh, offline, you know, in my opinion, the chief, um, uh, uh, the the people that are most disappointing in the entire uh, checks and balances stream that we're supposed to have in our government is the ju- judiciary. There's not one, not one judge in the entire uh, lineup of uh, judge of uh, courts, all the way to the Supreme Court, including the Supreme Court. Had enough gumption and enough uh, patriotism and enough courage to go ahead and uh, t- take the uh, uh, allow the the uh, evidence that had been that was being accumulated by all of these uh, audits to uh, come to, to trial and uh, and to, and to be adjudicated in a, in a normal way. I feel like if that had happened. This whole thing would have been uh, had an entirely different outcome. Yeah,
7: I, I haven't seen this. I've heard Mike Lindell speak before. He is an amazing company. It's in my college state of Minnesota, uh, and I think he's a really smart man. But I can't really speak to the allegations and the comments that he makes to it. But I want to well, add the point.
6: It wasn't his. It wasn't his work. It was actually the work of. Uh, of uh, a whole group of uh, auditors, you know, expert yeah, auditors. Yeah, so. yeah.
7: Well, let me just add the, maybe the fifth point to all this is we now have the result, whether we like it or not, Joe Biden's president, he now is the president. We have to respect the president. We now have to work to fix the election laws so this doesn't happen again. It becomes routine that anybody who happens to have an R behind their name can never win an election because – the odds are stacked against them. Um, But I also might say this has been a real blow to trying to reunite the country. And I don't understand. I mean, I do, but I don't understand why President Biden, who pledged unity at his inauguration speech, I thought it was a pretty good speech. You guys might have a different opinion, but I thought it was on average pretty good. Talked about his vision, but said, you know, we need to be unified and I'm going to be a president for all Americans, but then allows his Senate in his house to move forward on impeachment when he could have just called Chuck Schumer and said, Chuck, let it go. Let's move on. Let's get our focus on COVID. Let's go get those vaccines out to people because we're lagging and let's get the work of the country done. And let's try to heal all the wounds and return America to the United States of America, not the red states and the blue states.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to throw that. Now, I'm going to kind of make a comment here on that. Well, first of all, number one, if you know who Joe Biden is, I'm not surprised. Right. Uh, yeah, I <laughs> yeah, I don't view this guy as a good guy. I mean, this is a guy He's a corrupt politician, been one of his life. You know, he's always been a nasty – there's a nastiness to us. But the one thing to me has always been unforgivable in all of this, both Obama and Biden, need to be held responsible for the rest of their lives is they knew – the Russia collusion hoax was a hoax. They were they knew that Hillary Clinton was involved. They do all of this. All they had to do after the 2016 election say, there's no evidence, let's move on. This we would be so far ahead, the devices we see now would not be here. They created this world that we're live in. And those individuals who failed to uh fail to criticize a Tiva riots that's the all summer they created this world. And my and, and I know we got a break here coming up very quickly, but you know, I I want to kind of follow up on that theme. Because I think quite honestly, you know, I'm not surprised by what Joe Biden did. Uh so uh, your thoughts uh, before we go, Larry, before we go to break, anything?
6: Well, let's let's go ahead and take the break. Um, you're listening to the uh, Resistance Hour with uh, Dr. Larry and uh, Tom Donaldson on the Bachelor News Radio Network.
4: Let's go, Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse! Let's go, guys! Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more <coughs> money when they grow up?
1: Of course. I... I knew that.
4: Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely.
4: Mm-hmm. Wow, Jinx. <laughs> did you guys know that friendly children have more friends?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music?
4: Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. obvious. Oh, hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Not...
1: Huh. I- Didn't know that.
4: I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council.
6: You're listening to The Resistance Hour with uh, Dr. Larry and uh, Tom Donaldson on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And uh, our guest tonight is uh, Dr. David Rare of uh, the George Mason University faculty and, uh, and, other, me- and other nefarious uh, experiences. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, uh, Tom, you were about to make a point.
2: Yeah. So here's the point. I want to follow up because, you know, we're at this stage right now
6: where we're, li- we're st- literally
2: staring at the abyss in this regard. We've had four out of the last six elections where literally one side did not accept defeat, truly accept defeat. You know, 2000, well, John Kerry was, I think, a few years ago, if I'm not mistaken, basically still thinks Ohio stole it from him. Uh, 2016, the Democrats never accepted as legitimate, including Joe Biden, the election of Donald Trump. And Trump is basically paying them back in some ways, but now he hasn't accepted this defeat, and the reality is, you know, there was voter fraud. Again, I'm with you, Dave. You know, I, you know, as somebody who studied this issue, which I have, and who's, you know, you know, studied this issue, I can tell you there's voter fraud. You know, but the question has always been, you know, is it, a, you know, is it enough to sway election? You know, that's a debatable question. I would say at this point, you know, I can't say that it was. But I can say it exists, and I can say that the the system we have in place right now—you know, we had in this election—is going to lead to more disasters. And And there's going to be a point where, if people do not believe that their side truly won, truly lost, or their vote is no longer counting, it won't take long before people say the barrel of the gun will be the final solution. But you can't keep having elections where nobody is accepting the other guy, you know, the other guy as the victor. Right. There's a right. Point I think that's right. Where, where, and there's a point somewhere where that's going to come back, and because people, are, you know, you can't keep doing this. There's got to be a place. You got to have transparency where people on both sides can say, "All right, you won, you lost. Here's where we're at." I mean, like in the this New York congressional district 22 they just finally declared a winner are you kidding me is this you know this is where we're going to be going for the next uh, several years if we don't reform what we're doing and the Democrats are not going to reform what needs to be done they want to codify the disastrous system we have in place which will lead to even more questionable where people are going to simply say we were cheated. And eventually, people who feel they're cheated are going to basically use the barrel of the gun one way or the other.
7: Yeah, we're I hope that that's case.
2: not the case. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I
7: have to give kudos to Al Gore here because you remember, even though they had the Florida issue with the ballots, after yeah. he, he he wanted to get them counted, the courts didn't go his way. He finally did say, okay, I lost, Bush won, and we moved on as a country. And I don't always agree with President Gore, former Vice President Gore on a lot of things, but I do think he showed a lot of courage in basically coming to grips with the result, accepting that and saying, we all are in one nation, we still have to continue to work together.
6: That was the same thing that Nixon did uh, against Kennedy. Right, right.
7: Let me just give you guys, before we move on here, let me just give you guys some perspective from America I've been looking at and you may know about this Tom, but I looked at some Rasmussen polls recently and they polled people, are you watching the the impeachment? 33% not at all. You know, 22% going to watch everything. And I think what's happening is like now we have television shows that appeal to people's particular ideologies or bends. I think we have the anti-Trump people all watching the impeachment so they can clap and you know say, yes, yeah, right, he is bad, he is bad, he is bad. And then all the people who really don't care or are for him, not watching all, saying it's really political. And then the second quote was, or the second group of statistics was, do you think he's going to get uh, impeached? And here, an overwhelming number say no. So then you ask yourself, again, as an economist, I ask myself if there's no probability of success, Why are we spending all these resources of the taxpayers on this kind of uh, 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 self-effacing speeches that we can give when we have millions of small businesses who are near bankruptcy because of COVID, people losing their jobs and out of work? I mean, there's a better place we could spend that money than on these members of Congress and these senators hearing these speeches which would really impact people's people in America's lives. And that I'm really frustrated with as a citizen.
6: Yeah. But that depends on how you define success. Right. And they're, 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 for them. Success is not, does he get convicted? It's, do they get a chance to tell, make these outlandish, uh, accusations on television national television for a week. And, uh, Make and they hope to discredit him to the point where he is uh, becomes a non a none entity in terms of American politics. That, that, I think that's what they what they're trying to achieve.
7: Yeah. Right. Right.
6: Yeah.
7: Ironically, yeah. I, I just read something, and I'm sorry, Tom, but ironically, I just since yeah. I read something today by the former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, that says Trump's people aren't leaving him. So while the Democrats are trying to drive this division between him and his his supporters, they're rock solid with him. And I think Newt made the observation that it's because they think the the alternative is so unacceptable, which gives you kind of the hardened view of how many Americans don't like what's going on in Washington, want to see some real reforms, and want to see the country kind of live up to its greatest ideals. Yeah. Well, I, I, what,
6: yeah. That that's what he ran on. That's
2: what uh, Trump ran yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. I cause I want to follow up on that point as well. Because I, you know, like I said, I work, I run a political organization. I I, I work for a, a research foundation, and you know we poll people all the time. And one of the questions over the years we've polled is, so, do you think this? You know, it's essentially, do you think the system is rigged? And almost most the majority, the vast majority of these polls, you know, people are saying that, regardless, left, right, Democrat, Republican. And and I have to be again. I'm gonna go back, and look, staring at the abyss. I don't know, uh, Dave. You had a chance to read Time's magazine's uh, article. I did. Yeah,
7: I was surprised and, how much hubris yeah. was there to basically tell the story. Yeah. I probably <laughs> if I was yeah. them, I probably would have kept it quiet for a few more months. Yeah, yeah they're bragging here's,
6: about here's, it. But but here's the kicker. Hey, we stole but the election.
2: Yeah, we stole the election. But here's the thing. I mean, they basically stated, "You have." Major corporations, unions, the political, lead, a good portion of political leadership, activist groups, and you got the oligarchies of tech, all but saying, we're combining our forces to win, to you know, to make sure we win this election, whether it's fair or foul. We're going to make sure you don't get the information you need to make a decision because we're going to censor information. Yeah. They all but stated, and the thing that comes into play is this. We're seeing the development of an Obligarchy uh, In effect and I'm going to use the word And this is My biggest fear If we continue in this path within 15 Years if we don't change Our path we're looking at what I would classify As a combination of Fascist feudalism On the line of what we're seeing in China Today that's where We're headed and it's maybe quicker Than we think Uh and This is that side. I mean, if people look at that and say, when you uh, let me put it this way, let me ask you this question, Dave. Uh, from your experience, if some progressive would have told you when you're during the Gingrich era, when you were in Newt were doing the contract for America and that, said to you, It's a you know, you know, big corporations working with unions, working with the media are keeping us down. They're suppressing information. They're getting together to benefit themselves at the expense of small businesses. Do you think those progressives would have said that's a great idea?
7: Um, And at that time, probably no, because they mostly focused on, you know, progressive ideas of making sure everyone had health care, making sure everyone was fed. We had national programs. They didn't get into kind of a search and destroy mission. You know, where we need to not only destroy our opponents but we have to vanquish their ideas. And here's where I might disagree with you a little bit. I I think, you know, we haven't faced something like this in America for a long time, but don't underestimate the American spirit. I think what really happens is, you know, I'm in Arlington, Virginia, right across the ro- Potomac from Washington, we're all focused on this because these are our, this is our lives. This is what I teach some of my students. This is what I read and consume every day. But most Americans, what do they think about? They think about their families, their synagogue, their churches, their community centers, their nonprofits who are doing a great job fighting COVID-19, I might add, and don't they're get businesses. enough appreciation. Um, but they don't think about politics 24 hours a day. Now, maybe they're thinking about it more now but I'm hoping that they'll think about you know, what free speech continues to mean, what free elections, even though they're, you know, there are some problems, what they seem to mean, and that they just kind of raise the bar to hold elected officials of all parties more accountable and more transparent. I actually think that they have a low opinion of elected officials because they generally have a low opinion of government. You know, government's a problem. It's a nuisance to most people in America. Yeah. It usually means you get a ticket because you jaywalked or, you know, you have to pay your taxes or your kid can't get into a certain school because of some regulation. You know, so they view it as a negative. And I think that that's, and that's really inbred in our spirit. And I think that's going to be hard really to trample down. I mean, it, no, they, I, I, and that's what I'm keeps me hopeful. I, yeah,
2: I'm, there's a part of me that says that, uh, but there's this part of me that says there's something amiss that haven't been seen in past years. And let right. me you give an example. And let me give an example here. Uh, there was a great article by Lee Smith in the tabard and he talked about China. You know, China, and he he made a very interesting conversation during the Cold War. You know, the name High Hammer would always come up because he was that one guy that had money. You know, he was basically a Soviet stooge. Right. Businessman right. Who made I don't know if he
7: was a student, but, but yeah, it was was that Amoco? I'm invited, trying to think of the company.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was but the bottom yeah. line was at least said, he was the exception to the rule. Right. Most businessmen most of these people would not have thought about it. We there was a bipartisanship of at least not doing a lot of business with the Soviets. You know, we you know, we had our issues with the pipeline in the nineteen eighties, making sure that they didn't get that pipeline into Europe and be able to blackmail Europe with the pipeline and so on down the line. Today, you simply got corporations that are basically jumping hands over fists to profit with the Chinese at the expense of Americans, other you know, American workers, or America in general. And that's a totally different scene than what we saw in the Soviet. At least there, the majority of us saw them as evil and understood that. Yeah. We have a leadership class that don't view China as evil. And I and I'll go back to Tom Friedman, the writer from the New York Times. This guy for years has said, What a great model. I wish I could be China for a day. And I think he reflects a lot of the intellectual class and in our business, some of our business class and some of our political class that indeed this is a model that they look at for the future. They certainly yeah. the you know the, the The oligarchies in the tech the tech world are simply borrowing for their censorship the social media reward uh, that China is already implicated. So it's there's something amiss that wasn't there 20 years ago when you and Newt were in Washington D.C. with Bill Clinton. I mean, the fact is you guys, although totalitarian,
7: totalitarian in the history of. I don't want to say in the history of mankind because I'm not that old and I don't know that much. But in the history of maybe the 20th century, totalitarian regimes always make mistakes. They always go too far. And I'm thinking, you know, we've got this in love with China by many many of our policy people. I mean, from a business perspective, they're looking at a huge market.
2: Hey Dave, I'm to you, we're gonna hold you right there. This is uh, we got our last break here. The, uh, okay. the resistance hour, Dr. Larry and Tom, here on the Bassel News Radio Network.
5: You might know me, I'm 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are, a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedingamerica.org hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council.
2: Yeah, we're back here on the on the uh, resistance hour where Dr. Larry and Tom uh Dr. Larry, are you there?
6: Yes. Uh, did I get uh preempted on that last uh, little announcement?
2: Yeah,
4: well, I, ha- yeah I, I, think, I think we're having yeah. some
6: uh, technical difficulties here.
2: Yeah
4: can yeah, you yeah, have a little now? Technical-
2: Yes, we can. We yeah, we, I have to apologize to the audience. Uh we had a little technical difficulty there. Uh, with your phone, but it sounds like everything's back to working again, so take it over, man.
6: Well, I was just saying that I feel that I, our main uh, defense against uh, a dictatorship in the United States is basically the uh, culture of the United States in which uh, personal freedom is really the DNA in the DNA of our American culture, and the people that are not interested in uh, politics and don't follow all the uh, things the same way that we were talking about uh, here in uh, the Washington uh, area, um, all of, all you have to do to get their attention is to start telling them they can't do something that they want to do. And I think that this has really started already uh, as a uh, backlash against the uh, COVID uh, shutdown that we've been having and that that's really actually becoming uh, clearer and clearer. But I think that same, very same impulse in the American uh, psyche is also our uh, our defense against uh, the uh, really um, true, what I call the unholy alliance of uh, people uh, that are uh, an oligarchy that is trying to control the uh, entire United States of America and that we're seeing uh, being ascendant at the moment. So that, that is my, that's my view. And, yeah, uh, I, I
7: you... think that's right, Larry. I think that's right. Um, let me just say that if, having been in Washington for a long time and seeing parties come in and out of power, the party that generally comes into power o- always overplays its hand the margin of victory for the democrats in the house now with claudia tenney being elected and and certified is 3 votes. midterm elections most incumbents lose seats. so why you ask yourself why would the democrats be proposing all these radical things when they have a 3 seat margin because they eventually i'm sorry they're they're actually giving the republicans a lot of fodder in which to defeat their own members and put them back in the minority. And they may not care, but I would not, if I was their consultant, I would say, you know, let's get the economy rolling. Let's get COVID. Let's do the vaccine. Let's make sure there are no foreign wars. Let's just have some normalcy here that gives us the highest probability of being returned to power as opposed to impeachment, ugliness, nastiness towards calling other members. I mean, It's outrageous to me that one member of Congress would say in the media that I saw a member walking with people, and I think they were plotting the sedition. How disrespectful is that? I mean, that person should just resign and go back home, because we'll replace them with someone who's smarter and probably better.
6: Yeah, but that that does assume that the fact the way that they stole this election is not going to continue to be uh, the norm and of course i think that's what they're counting on they're counting on the fact the idea that that they're not going to have to worry about uh opposition of any uh significance because uh they can they can control they can control the uh the, the entire electoral process and i think that that I think that's really in the back of a lot of their minds
5: right right Except
6: and i and i I just want to say one thing I think that the answer to that is in the states as opposed to in Washington i think it's it's the states that are that are going to have to uh man up to their responsibilities to uh control local elections. And we're we're starting to see that already with these lawsuits of the Attorney General. Go ahead, David.
7: No, I was going to say, I think you're right, Larry. I mean, Republicans, and this is not a Republican-Democrat thing, but Republicans now have more state legislators than Democrats. We control a substantial number of state houses. We have a substantial number of state governors. So they should see the writing on the wall and say, we better change this because if they get them, they're eventually going to get me. And I live by the self-interest rule. People always act on their self-interest, and therefore they'll be more motivated to take action. They should have taken action before this all happened during the summer, and there's a lot of reasons probably why they didn't. Um, but they now have what what the example and how do we prevent that example from occurring again while while legitimately not disenfranchising people, allowing every American to vote who's a citizen, uh, but they have to have residency, they have to have a real location, and they can't be living in an empty parking lot.
6: But you're the guy that said that uh, all of these guys are so lazy.
7: Well, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I I said that to you earlier in a conversation we had. I'm also I'm often just. Dis- now, I grew up in, I grew up in Illinois, uh, which is a Democratic state. People think it's a Republican state because Abe Lincoln is from there. But it's really been a Democratic state for a long, long time with Republican governors winning elections. But, you know, and it seems like the Republicans, one thing that people liked about Trump is that he was a fighter. And there have been a lot of Republicans for too long that said, well, let's just, whether you're, you know, hitting me with a mallet. After I'm done beaten and bloodied, you will shake my hand and I'll shake your hand and say, well, we're both gentlemen or gentle lady and gentlemen, whatever. And I think that has to end without causing a civil like disobedience or civil unrest or anything that tears at the fundamental structure of America. They just have to do their job, use the laws and be smart, which to me seems pretty easy. But, of course, I personally have been a long-time advocate of transparency of state and federal spending for years, which doesn't happen because no one really wants to know where the money is being spent, although taxpayers have an obligation to know where their tax dollars are being used, in my opinion.
6: Well, I think we're in for trouble. We're some real... Uh trying uh, times here in the next uh, in the next few months and maybe the next few years. Tom, what do you think?
2: Well, I think you know, there's no doubt in my mind we are because this is a totally different Democratic Party than what right. we've seen totally, that we've ever seen in the past. In fact, this is a totally different political party we've seen totally in the past. Uh, mainly the sense that we have a party where you have key members Leadership members who don't even believe in America anymore, or at least the America that you and I believe Uh, in—you know, the rule of law, the Constitution, whatever word you want to use it. Even the simple things like, uh, you know, uh, working hard to move up the economic ladder—these are thoughts that they view as alien to them. And and when you look at, you know, the Green New Deal, and you look at these proposals. We're talking people controlling aspects of every aspect of your life. You know, you know, the Democratic Party today is the Socialist Party of America. It's not the party of even Tip O'Neill or the party of Bill Clinton in the 1990s you dealt with. It's a totally different creature.
7: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my father yeah. – I'm sorry. My father was a union yeah. union man. He was a Democrat. Most of my relatives in Chicago were Democrats. I grew up I grew up a Democrat. I got smarter when I believed in freedom and opportunity and wanted to kind of move from my working class background to my middle income background and have a future for my children. Um, but it's really not the same. You're right about that, Tom. It's really not the same Democratic Party. And I think a lot of their leaders are probably turning over in their graves saying, what happened? You know? Yeah. I mean, hey, that's I mean you think Every about... Day. One of the major components of the Democratic Party were Catholic Americans. And look and see how people of faith are often treated by this progressive Democratic Party. They're ridiculed.
6: Yeah, yeah, especially the uh, abortion thing as far as Catholics are
2: concerned. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But, yeah, I'm going to take the end of that step further. I mean, one one of my favorite researchers have become, uh, Joe Cockton, who basically was a registered Democrat, now he's a registered independent. and He's certainly not a Trump lover, but he's written about a lot of this for years, and he and he's kind of made it clear where the Democratic Party is essentially declared war on the, on the working class, the class that basically propelled many of, the, of this party in the you know the, the 20th century into a dominant party in many cases, and in, 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 in dominance throughout 1930 to the 1970s, and. And, and and it's like they mock the very people that they say they want to build up. Yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, basically this is the party I mean, I look at this party today, it's basically the party of the oligarchy the very rich, the very poor, and everybody in the middle, you're on your own. Uh, right. If you look at California, if you look at California, it's got the biggest uh, inequality out there. I mean, from top to bottom, it's got more people living in poverty. It's got the highest number of people on welfare, even as a percentage basis. And if you're middle class, try to make you know try to make ends meet. And $100,000, you'd be lucky to get an apartment for like $3,000 a month. Yeah, yeah. In San Francisco and well, LA.
7: You know, the one of the I'll jump in here and say one of my great hopes is you can't beat the market. You can put all these policies in like California's does, but the result is always going to be the same. Less wealth, less resources for people to build up their lives. And I think ultimately, to Larry's point earlier and to some of the things we discussed, people are going to choose freedom and opportunity and the ability to move themselves up on the economic ladder to make, quite frankly, a better home for their children, their relatives, bring more people of they may be related to from other countries to America. So it really continues to be the land of opportunity. But if you have these really out there policies, I mean, now they're talking about a $15 minimum wage. In the middle of pandemic, when small businesses are c- closing, many of them forever, I mean, that's just insane. But that's one of yeah. my hopes is that we'll kind of get, get out of this craziness, get back to sanity, um, and kind of uh, see Amer- America re- reemerge again for all people. So they all have opportunity to be successful because that's what I want. And I think everybody in America wants, of course, except the monopolists who want to keep their markets to make their millions yeah. and not face competition.
2: Uh, yeah. Well, what I can tell you what, later, what do you think? Because you've talked about the, the middle class and the coming storm for years on this.
6: Well, I, 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 my theory is that that everything really ultimately s- starts with the uh, what I call the uh, wealth gap, um, and that's something that the Democrats have, in fact, uh, recognized. Um, I think that they're. Their solution is, uh, I think, first of all, that that you must—we cannot put up with the continuation of the uh, uh, inflation that has uh, made the middle class uh, uh, almost—that has has, uh, resulted in 80 percent of the American assets uh, uh, being— Controlled by about one percent of the population, we can't, we can't, we cannot afford that because we are a an economy that is based upon uh, consumption. But uh, how do we how do we get around it? Uh, how, what do we do about it? Uh, the Dem- the Democrats have been very aware of this problem, but their solution of uh, ca- uh, socialism, as I feel, is completely uh, wrong headed however we have to get a more uh we have to get a version of capitalism that is much more uh attuned to the modern uh mentality uh which includes a, a certain amount of uh, idealism uh, i mean you really in going way back to Ma- uh, marx and engels you have a, an idealism that was uh, part of the, uh, appeal of, uh, initially of, uh, communism or socialism and that, uh, you know, everybody's equal and, uh, we have all this, uh, equality and everything is kumbaya. Um, Amer- and I think that, that we've got, we do have some very, uh, very helpful, uh, uh movements in the capitalist, uh, Arena that are moving in in that direction and I, I call your attention to the uh, uh, conscious capitalism and the other types the other movements that are really remaking capitalism but unless we do that w- we are not going to win but I think we are doing it and and we just we've got to continue and really really uh, take it. Uh, but we're, we're actually running out of time here. Uh, Dave, uh, you got about can you give us your one minute summary and we'll ask Tom to do the same thing?
7: Yeah, thanks, Larry. Um, thanks for having me on tonight. Impeachment goes down. They continue to use Trump as a lightning rod to keep their base fired up. They I mean, the Democrats continue to push economic policies. Like the elimination of Keystone pipeline uh, which will cause jobs and cause economic problems for people, and I believe that if they're on this current course, they could lose a substantial number of seats in the two thousand in the next election, and the Biden presidency could then be fundamentally altered with a house that's controlled by a different party, which most Americans want bipartisan government, I might add,
2: Tom. Well, I would like to say, you know, like you say, there's a part of me that's un- hopeful to the sense that, uh, but I, you know, that hey, we can change things around. And I look at the states, and I'm looking at governors like DeSantis, like Christy Noem, and others who understand this and who are prepared to be the real resistance that we're not we're not going to see in Capitol Hill. We're not going to see in Capitol. Hill. It's got to come from outside of Washington. As you just stated, Larry. Because that's where success has been done in this pandemic, and these are the people who know how to fight. Right. Well, let, we... let me
7: just add, because we've got to go, but let me just add that we also have to fundamentally address other people who disagree with us as Americans. We're all Americans. And that's what unites us. That's what brings us together. And we have to reduce this vitriolic hate that a lot of people have with people who don't agree with them. Because I think that helps us through this problem that we have.
6: Amen to that. And with that final thought, we want to thank uh, Dr. Rare for uh, coming on tonight, and uh, we want to say uh, good night to our audience and God bless America <laughs>